Can anti-VEGF agents act as effective prophylactic treatment for diabetic patients with a high risk of developing diabetic eye disease? Data from Protocol W's two-year time point shared at the 2021 AAL annual meeting might provide some answers on that question. I'm Greg Notstein here with Scott Chriswanis, and this is coverage of the 2021 AAO annual meeting on New Retina Radio. Dr. Raj Maturi joined us to review the results from the DRCR Retinant Network's Protocol W trial. We also invited Dr. Usha Chakravarthy to the program to outline her presentation on the secondary endpoints of the EDNA study. What was found when a team closely monitored patients for progression from unilateral to bilateral wet AMD? Join us on this episode to hear the details of these two presentations. It has been well established that anti-VEGF drugs are effective therapeutic agents for diabetic eye disease, but can they be used to prevent vision loss in eyes that are deemed high risk among diabetic patients? To answer this question, we turn to Dr. Raj Maturi, who addressed this topic on a presentation about the DRCR Retina Network's Protocol W study at this year's AAO annual meeting. Dr. Maturi is an Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at the Indiana University School of Medicine and practices at Midwest Eye Institute in Indianapolis. Dr. Maturi, welcome to New Retina Radio. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about Protocol W. Well, why don't you do just that for us? Why don't you walk us through the layout of this study? Be happy to. So Protocol W was randomized multi-center with study sites around the country on patients with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes who had moderate or severe NPDR in at least one eye without any evidence of posterior neovascularization. They all had to have pretty good vision. In fact, the average vision was 20-20 in each group, and they could not have had any therapy in the last year for DME. In fact, they could only have had a total of a maximum of four anti-VEGF injections, and that would have to be at least a year prior to their enrollment in the study, and only 10% had this. We wanted to see um, if the patients who were assigned to either two milligrams of aflibercept or sham would have a difference in benefit in visual acuity as well as progression of PDR. We had about 200 eyes in each cohort, and this is a two-year result of a four-year study being presented here. How often was therapy administered? Sure. Subjects got injections five times in the first year and three times in subsequent years. Those in the sham group got a sham treatment in the first year and subsequent years, and they only got treatment if they met high-risk criteria for PDR or our defined definition of DME. Can you tell me about the definitions you used for DR and DME? For PDR, we used the development of neovascularization in the posterior retina, either at the disc or in the periphery, with the presence of either vitreous hemorrhage or anterior neovascularization, which would also count as different definitions of PDR. For the definition of center-involved DME, it was both anatomic and functional. They had to have central macular thickness of at least 300 microns, 
associated with some vision loss, either five letters at two visits or 10 letters at one visit. Let's talk about the baseline characteristics of the patients in this study. Was there anything notable at baseline? Yes, all of these patients had to have excellent vision. The average vision was in fact 20-20. And only a small percentage were allowed, about 10% in this study, who had some edema in the distant past that was treated at least one year ago with an anti-VEGF. And at most, they could have had four with uh, treatments with any anti-VEGF. Now, the moment we've all been waiting for, what were the two-year results? So we saw a significant difference in anatomy. 44% of the sham patients developed either DME or PDR at two years. With treatment, only 16% met these findings. So there was a statistically significant benefit to treatment with almost a two and a half time decrease in those progressing. When it came to DME, 15% of the sham patients progressed, while only 4% of those on treatment progressed to DME. Did you find anything valuable in the data set among untreated eyes that did progress? Yes. So many times we generally don't have sham follow-ups in studies anymore. And in this case, the NPDR patients provided much valuable information. Half of the eyes when NPDR progresses, progressed in neovascularization of the disc or of the periphery as the first manifestation of progression. Only a quarter of the patients who progress present with DME and vision loss as their main method of progression. We also looked at two-step worsening among the groups. Only about 5% of the patients in the treatment group worsened by two steps compared to 12% of those in the sham group. Similarly, 45% of the treated eyes had a two-step improvement compared to only 14% of the sham treated eyes. Would it be correct to assume that all of these disease marker data transferred to visual function? Not necessarily, um, and not as expected necessarily. Visual acuity letter scores at two years was just about identical between both groups. Mean visual acuity change area under curve, the proportion of patients who lost five letters, 10 letters, 15 letters, were just about identical between these two groups. So from a visual acuity standpoint, there was really no difference between both of these groups. And the same thing was true of the OCT data in that there was no significant change in central subfield thickness from baseline between both of these groups. Uh, we did find a significant improvement in the OCT volume in the treated group, which was improved compared to the observed group. But again, this did not correlate to any visual acuity findings. Were you surprised by the difference between anatomic results and visual function results? This dichotomy between vision and uh, function is not necessarily unexpected. Um, we know that diabetes goes in a pretty lockstep fashion in terms of progression over time. And we also know treatment with anti-VEGF both slows this progression down and sometimes reverses it. We also know that visual acuity in diabetic macular edema as well as in PDR progression is one of the last things to go. So if we can treat patients before they get to that level of vision loss, maybe there is a benefit. 
Now, the real question will be what will happen at four years? Did this early treatment with an average of eight injections over the first two years actually provide any visual benefit to this patient over a much longer evaluation period, such as a four-year follow-up in this case? And, and if it does, then there might be significant benefit to pretreatment. Well, listeners, make sure to book your calendars for 2023 uh, when that four-year data comes out. And of course, we will have you back, Dr. Maturi, uh, to tell us about those uh, findings. Thank you so much for joining us today on New Retina Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Early detection of neovascular AMD is great if clinicians can do it. Which modalities are best suited for early detection and just how different is early detection from conventional detection? To find out more, let's welcome to the program Dr. Usha Chakravarthy, who presented a sub-analysis of the EDNA study at this year's AAO annual meeting. Dr. Chakravarthy is a professor of ophthalmology and vision sciences at Queen's University, Belfast. Dr. Chakravarthy, thanks for joining us on New Retina Radio. It's my pleasure to be here with you today. Let's start at the top. Can you give us a summary of the EDNA study? This study was conducted in the UK in a large number of clinical centers that deal with patients with neovascular AMD and other forms of AMD. The intention of the study was to determine the tests that performed with best diagnostic accuracy compared to fluorescein angiography, which is the traditional method of diagnosing the presence of neovascular AMD. We chose to study five tests. These are all easily performed, non-invasive tests. One, the first one being the patient's own assessment of their visual function, which is self-reported. The next being the Amsler test, which is a printed chart uh, with a grid on it, and this can unmask distortion. The third is the patient's visual acuity measured in a clinic done on charts, which we're all used to using in and, and, and for patients experiencing when they attend for site checks in the community or in hospitals. The fourth is a clinical examination of the, by the clinician using traditional methods such as slit lamp by microscopy. And finally, optical coherence tomography, which is uh, a more recently introduced non-invasive way of looking at retinal structure without uh, the use of contrast-based agents, which is something we do with fluorescein angiography. So the idea was to see patients who had wet AMD in one eye. These are patients who present and, and come to clinic because they need uh, regular treatments with our current form of uh, treatments, which is anti-VEGF agents. And because the first eye is being followed up, the second eye could be observed in greater detail with these five tests. And in the event of pre-specified conditions being fulfilled in these tests, which we call a positive test, then a fluorescein angiogram had to be performed uh, in order to see if the test had correctly picked up the presence of neovascular AMD. So the patients were seen on average between four and six weeks because they required their treatment in these sort of intervals. And in the event that um, a neovascular AMD lesion was detected, these patients were exited from the study. 
but followed up in a follow-on study. Also, at 18 and 36 months, patients had a fluorescein angiogram in the event that they never experienced one of these triggers because we wanted to be sure that we didn't miss anybody that had escaped all of these five tests um, as a positive uh, trigger. So we had 145 conversions to new vascular AMD in the 550-odd patients were enrolled. And this represents a conversion of rate of around 8% per year, which is, which is very much in line with what has been observed in the past. What, in short, were the Edna team's findings? The main purpose of Edna was to determine which was the best test at detecting the onset of neovascular AMD. And none of the tests performed particularly well apart from OCT, which performed at the highest sensitivity and specificity. Today, we're talking about a secondary endpoint in the Edna study. Can you tell me more about it? Yes, of course. So the Edna study offered us an unparalleled opportunity to look at the characteristics of the neovascular AMD lesion at onset, because these patients were picked up pretty much within a month or two of the onset of the condition. So we compared the Edna study I, which who, where there was early detection, to the conventional detection, which is the matched fellow eye of the 145 participants who converted. In a subset of these participants, we also had detailed assessment of the morphology of the retina using fluorescein angiography, which was read in a reading center independently. So the comparison was with in the 119 participants uh, who had a matched fellow eye to the Edna study eye. I understand that you were subtyping uh, neovascular lesions, is that correct? Absolutely, that's right. So we looked at various aspects of this neovascular AMD lesion, first of all, in terms of function. So the visual acuity in the matched first presenting eyes was approximately 20 letters worse compared to the visual acuity at the time of detection in the Edna study eye. We also looked at several morphological features and this included the size of the lesion and the uh, OCT measure of thickness of the lesion, which is an indication of how much exudative activity there is in the neovascular AMD lesion. In all of these measures, the Edna study I performed or had features that showed that they were very much less active and less advanced compared to the fellow eye. Let's get into some of the specifics about that. So um, were there any specific percentages that you might want to discuss when it comes to comparing eyes at baseline uh, and then eyes further into the study itself? Indeed. So let's take a look at the visual acuities. First of all, we have in the matched fellow eyes, a visual acuity of around 54 letters. That is the patient is able to read halfway down a standard visual acuity chart. In the early detection group, the visual acuity was 74 letters, which is really the very small print uh, or the smallest letters that can be seen in the visual acuity chart. The lesion size was roughly half in terms of millimeters squared in the early detection group 
of approximately 3.2 millimeters squared compared to the conventional detection, which was 7.7. .7. So this was a, a very significant finding. And the central subfield thickness on OCT was approximately 100 microns thicker in the conventionally detected match fellow eyes compared to the Edna study eye. We also looked at the proportions of the macular lesion subtype um, uh, and its relationship to the size of the lesion. So we have three types of macular neovascular lesions. We call them types one, two, and three. In type one lesions, the, you can see very care easily in the slides that I presented that the um, lesion was approximately double the size when conventionally detected. For type two lesions, the lesions were nearly three times the size compared to the early detection group. And for the type three lesions, again, they were double in size. I understand you also looked at lesion location. Yes, it's important to know where the lesion is located because if there is foveal involvement of the lesion, then visual function um, is depressed. And also the presence of the lesion in the foveal uh, retina can result in permanent damage to the fovea with, and, and therefore function is never recoverable. So when we looked at the location of the lesion uh, by subtype, we found that the type one lesions, these are lesions that tend to spread underneath the, or on the external aspect of the retinal pigment epithelium. These tended to be um, in the majority in the conventional detection group subfobial, nearly 80% were subfobial. Compared to the early detection group, this was around 50% were still subfobial. So in the um, type two lesions, which tend to be the most aggressive type of lesions because the new vessels ramify in the subretinal space internal to the retinal pigment epithelium and are associated with worse visual outcomes. These lesions on average uh, in the conventional detection group tended to be subphobial, but in the early detection group, the vast majority were extraphobial or juxtaphobial. So this gives us the opportunity to intervene early and protect the foveal retina by appropriate uh, treatment. In the type three lesions, these are known as retinal antiomatous proliferations. Again, a, a significant proportion of these were subfoveal in the conventional detection group. In the early detection group, there were none that were subfoveal. What did your research find regarding rates of fibrosis and rates of atrophy in these patients? Well, fibrosis is an advanced mark, marker of the damage to the retina. In the conventional detected group, we found that 11% of eyes had fibrosis at initial presentation and fewer than 2% of eyes in the early detection group had fibrosis. Also, when fibrosis was present, the area of fibrosis was nearly 5 millimeters squared in the conventional detection group compared to the early detection where it was just under um, 2.4 um, millimeters squared. Atrophy, on the other hand, was present at the same frequency in both the conventional and early detection groups. But again, the area of atrophy of the retina encompassed by within the lesion was half 
um, in the early detection group compared to the conventional detection group. All in all, what knowledge was gained by this sub-analysis of Edna? Well, what this study has shown is that eyes harboring early lesions had very good function, that the, that the lesions were half the size and had less lesion activity. So they can be much more easily controlled with the anti-VEGF treatment and if given optimally, you can preserve vision for very long periods of time, allowing these patients to function um, in a more effective way. Remember that these patients were all already had uh, significant vision loss in their first eye. So we're talking about the second eye, which is the eye that they rely upon for uh, most of their daily living activities. It was also interesting to us that these type one lesions were on average, mostly subfoveal at early detection, suggesting that they are present even in, in a non-exudative manner and that they are much more likely to become exudative and active and, that, and, that they, and when they are present in a dormant fashion in the, in the eye that um, they tend to be subfoveal. It was also interesting to us that the lesions had a high degree, or at least a, a proportion of uh, eyes had fibrosis, even in the early stages of uh, exudation, 10% to 11% in the, uh, uh, in the uh, conventional detected group. The frequency of atrophy was also interesting because we think that this suggests that atrophy is probably present and could be a trigger for the development of neovascularization itself. So all of these findings satisfy our scientific curiosity, perhaps, but what is the clinical relevance of these findings? How might these actually change practice patterns? Well, we did have the opportunity to look at how these patients fared over time because they went into this rollover study and when we examine the outcomes in the matched groups, we find that patients who receive treatment with anti-VEGF agents and had optimal management strategies still did not, did not achieve a functional outcome that was as good as those that had the early detection. So for example, a patient who might have started off with a visual acuity of around 70 letters um, in, and had been detected early might, would have gained a, an amount that would have put them into the near normal visual acuity category of around 80 letters, whereas a similar level of visual function in the more in the um, conventionally detected group generally resulted in either a very minor gain or a loss over time. Dr. Shankarvarthi, thanks for joining us on New Retina Radio. Thank you very much for inviting me to be part of this podcast. That's all for this episode of New Retina Radio's coverage of the AAO 2021 annual meeting. We've got plenty more coming, so be sure to subscribe to New Retina Radio on your preferred podcast platform. 